Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we are rewinding back just a little less than six years to August 20th, 2013. Um, on some levels, doesn't it seem kind of crazy that six years ago was 2013? 2013 doesn't seem like that long ago, does it, as uh, time marches on. Uh, this episode was originally called, Holy Crap, I Just Found Out Everything Isn't Super, Part 1. Um, as I was putting together rewinds for this uh, vacation period, I jumped on the Zello Network. I said, hey guys, what do you guys think would be a, a, some good stuff for um, rewinds? And quite a few people said this one, 1190, and Part 2, 1191, which you'll hear tomorrow, they listen to that like once a year anyway. So if I did it for rewinds, like it would be great for everybody. It would be great for them because that would be their, you know, once a year re-listening to these two. That these two uh, are big deals to them. That it really helps them keep their mind in the right place. And so there's not a lot of new information. A lot of times when I do a rewind, I'll be like, here's some things that have changed and all. Um, obviously, there's going to be a few temporal things in here that maybe are a little different today than they were then or things that are a little more true than they were then. But what I wanted to kind of just start out with is the whole concept of the mind that's going on here because I find that a lot of these Rewind shows are shows that people share uh, with new people. So sometimes the first shows people hear are Rewinds. This is a really good pair to share, and if you're new to this, and you're new to prepping, and maybe somebody reached out to you on a forum or through their blog or something like that or on social media and said, hey, chill, check out Jack Spirigo's doing, you end up listening to this. Um, it really is important to understand the alarmism. And I want to tie it into something that's a different type of mistake because I know I didn't talk about this in either episode. Let's use cryptocurrency or a stock market opportunity to, to illustrate this. Joe is going along. Cryptocurrency or this stock has been doing its thing for years. And all of a sudden, he realizes, hey, I'm missing out. And he'll break his neck to get money into the market now because if I don't get it in now, I'm going to miss out. And inevitably, that Joe always gets his ass kicked and loses money. Inevitably, that happens. Because anybody that's in that mindset, you know, I guess they could get lucky or whatever. But in general, that mindset almost always comes along at the worst possible time to take significant action before making a determination of whether or not it's the right action to take. And what happens is people live the majority of their life, some people live their entire lives believing that nothing could ever really happen to them. That when they hear horrible things on the news about, you know, forest fires wiping out uh, half a county, God, it's, it's terrible. And that what they're thinking is, I'm glad that doesn't happen here. Uh, they hear a story about a family uh, who was killed by somebody that just broke in their house because they wanted their stuff. And they think, boy, it's good. I think I live in this neighborhood where that kind of thing doesn't happen at all. And there is no place that these things do don't happen. The, 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 I, have, I have seen some of the most awful things that you can think of happen to people in some of the quaintest, nicest, Norman Rockwell-style neighborhoods that there are. So, But they, they have this insulation, this bubble that they create around themselves. And when that bubble gets popped it is usually not the kind of thing that I just mentioned. It's not this individual thing, which you know when it comes to disasters, that's where we start out teaching people to be prepared. Be prepared to lose a job. Be prepared for if a family member gets terminally ill and you have to deal with that situation. Be prepared for somebody to drive a car through your house. I mean, somebody just drove a car through over 150 feet of my fencing. It could have been my house, right? Um, there's a fire, uh, storms that rip the roof off of your house and a few of your neighbors, but not many others. Like, that's the most likely thing to happen to you. But generally, when the, the, the cocoon that people form around themselves of, of what we call normalcy bias, 
When it's broken, it usually what happens is that person hears some piece of information that can't possibly be true. Maybe they've heard it before, but they hear it in a way that it goes in and they understand it. Uh, they hear about the national debt or something like that, whatever it is. So they start doing research. They start talking to people and everybody tells them they're nuts. But when, when, when a person can't find sane and rational things to meet their concerns, they'll keep looking until they find something, and inevitably they'll find something like an Alex Jones. Oh, they're going to put you in a FEMA camp! Ah! And since no one else has been willing to be honest with them about the fact that, hey, gee, everything isn't super, then they feel embraced by the extreme. And then the worst possible thing happens. They take in the extreme and they begin to become thirsty for more information. And they become addicted to that source of information. And no matter how preposterous or how ridiculous or how unlikely what that source is saying... They become enamored by it, and they become the person who's looking to put $50,000 into cryptocurrency this second, and they don't want to wait one more second because somebody might get there first. And inevitably, they get hurt. And what happens is these people are the ones that become the most distanced from being prepared over time. They leave. Way back when I started the show, a guy reached out to me. And he was one of the all-time best-selling authors in the preparedness industry. He made these books. And he was pretty smart about the way he did it. In his first round of sales in his books, over time he sold like three-quarters three of a million copies of these books. And um, he sent me one of, the, one of the copies from when he, he did multiple editions of this book. And it was more like a, kind of looked like an old-school phone book the way it was designed. And it went through how to put your household in order and all types of things. There was tons of advertisements in it. He's pretty smart. He was a 70s back-of-the-book marketing type guy. And the one from like 1998, as he was pushing this book leading up to Y2K, was full of advertisements, full of advertisements. All these long-term food storage companies, shelter companies, etc., right? And as I'm paging through this book, I'm like, I never heard of any of these people. So I start trying to look them up. And a good 95% of them were not in business. This was from 98, and I'd started the show in 2000. So in 10 years, the majority of people that had paid for this man's book to be printed, that's how he made so much money. He had zero printing costs. He charged these people to be in his book, so his printing costs were more than covered. So his markup and his, his, his commission on the books was 100% plus. So he, uh, he, he, he did a good job, and his information was rational, but... All of this, all of this, all these companies that had built businesses on this fear were out of business in just 10 years. No sign of them left. And when I saw that, I realized I was on the right path, and I realized I had to stay on the path, and I had to not go down that path of creating and sparking fear in people. That we had to be from an empowerment standpoint. So that when people came to us and they were in that state, they, they had been exposed, their, their normalcy bias bubble had been popped, that we had a solution for them that was sane and rational, that they could enact. And if they didn't, if they didn't say too much about it, they could probably do it in their household. And their, if their spouse was reluctant, they really wouldn't even be reluctant. They wouldn't even realize most of it. In fact, the biggest discussion problems that they might have would be over getting on a budget and paying off debt which you could blame on Dave Ramsey instead of preparedness. And that's where these two episodes come from. So again, here we go, back to the original episodes from August 20th, 2013, episode 1190. Holy crap, I just found out everything isn't super, part one. Part two will be coming tomorrow. Remember, while these episodes are commercial free, you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Today I want to talk about Kind of a different phenomenon. And I think it's something we need to examine um, as preppers on an ongoing basis. Because if you're a prepper now, a modern survivalist, and you're not alone, right? You're not trying to be alone. You're actually talking to other people, and you're helping other people. It's important for you to want once in a while remind yourself that you didn't always know what you know now. And I'm not just talking about skills and what to do. I'm talking about... The peace 
and the courage that comes in time as you begin to take steps in the right direction. And an understanding that everything's not going to fall apart in three seconds tomorrow morning. And it's easy to kind of just, you know, maybe even snicker a little bit at people once in a while when you think, hey, that's not really, you know, why is that person so upset or so worried? Let's just take a breath and all. But I think we all forget what I call first exposure. Um, in the sci-fi community, in, in the world of Star Trek, there's something called first contact. First contact there is the first time a species uh, makes contact with a species on, from a planet other than their own. Right, So like the first time you realize I'm not the only one in the universe, and you know for sure you're not the only one in the universe. First exposure kind of feels like that for some people. I mean, it's not as dramatic, and the difference is it really happens. Um, it's not just something on the TV. First exposure works like this. The average person is rocking along with their life. They may have been exposed to some of this homesteading stuff and some of this preparedness stuff in the past by parents or uncles or something. They never really took it seriously. Even if they did take it a little bit seriously, they never really dug into it. They never really understood it. They just understood, hey, some of this stuff makes sense. They might even be a person that has, you know, some flashlights and batteries laying around and, and stuff like that for when the power goes out. But they always see the power going out. It's just, well, the power went out and it'll be back on tomorrow. So let's light a candle and roast a marshmallow in the fireplace. Uh, they probably have a decent job. And uh, the people with the worst first exposure experiences are the ones with the most to lose. There are people that have 300 or 400k in a in a 401k plan, uh, and and are you know in their their early 40s and, and thinking they're going to retire a millionaire. They've already got enough groundwork laid that they feel like they're going to do it, and and they've been convinced everything's going to be okay and there'll be an extra couple grand a month for Social Security and you know the kids are all going to go to school and yeah they have a lot of debt but they'll be able to pay that off by the time they get out and. Everything's just fine, and there might be some recessions, but everything's cyclical, and they meet with their financial liar once a year. Yeah, I said liar for new people, financial liar, and uh, he, you know, he he advises them that they'll stay the course and dollar cost average and diversify by owning like ten different funds that are all paper assets leveraged into the same class of assets, and they call that diversity. And life is good, right? Somewhere along the line, something happens. What usually happens is either personal or one or two levels away, or they see it in a national news story. So what can happen is all of a sudden the guy that thought he would never lose his job loses his job. They get through it. He finds a new job, but he thinks, holy shit, that was scary. They depleted a lot of their savings. The new job doesn't feel as secure as the old job. The old job I thought was secure wasn't secure, and we start down a path of discovery. Okay. or a person that's known somebody their whole life and has always thought of that person as being one or two steps above them has some sort of a fall due to illness or due to economics or whatever, something like that happens, and they start examining their own life, and then they begin a journey of discovery. I'm going to go on the journey of discovery for everybody in the same path in just a second. Or something like a Hurricane Katrina or a Hurricane Sandy or a tsunami or a Fukushima incident or a swine flu epidemic that wasn't but it could have been or a Y2K or whatever it is on a national scale makes that person think, well, what would I do if, and then that person, if they're willing to face reality, begins a journey of discovery. But one way or another, people begin a journey of discovery. Somewhere in their heart, somewhere in their mind, somewhere in their soul, somewhere in their being, they, they intrinsically know as soon as they begin this journey, I need to be prepared. Okay? I need to be prepared and I need to make sure that if something goes wrong, I can take care of myself and I can take care of the people I love. They know that. That's not uh, an intuition. It's a fact and they feel it in their heart and their soul and they know it. But they also realize that everybody around them, that's just like they were yesterday, that hasn't begun this journey of discovery yet, is going to tell them that they're crazy and not to worry. Because they would have done the same thing yesterday themselves. Or at least last week or last month. This is a new thing, right? This is first exposure. So now it's almost like the guy has just started bolting the rocket ship together with the first war drive engine, right? They're about to go out into the darkness and see, is there anybody there? With this journey of discovery, though, we're not looking for somebody with pointed ears or green skin, right? What we're looking for is justification for the feeling. 
So we start to say to ourselves, what really is the biggest threat? You look at a hurricane, you go, that sucks, but I could get through that as long as I'm not dead and we could put away some, and yeah, but I need to make sure that, like, I live in Nebraska, we don't have those, well, tornadoes, but that's been going on forever, so they start digging, and usually what they'll find is either the growth of the police state in America, which is scary as shit if you really look at it, or the economic inevitability of a serious economic shift slash collapse that there's no way around. Or, in most instances, the person that does a lot of research that's really trying to justify what they're doing, instead of just doing it because it's the right thing, finds both. And first exposure has happened. The the ship has gone out past the the, the Kuiper belt and the asteroid belt and the, the, what do you call it, the, the Oort cloud, out past the comets around the solar system and made first contact with some weird-looking creature. That weird-looking creature, though, turns out to be a monster that's going to consume their 401k plan, that's going to wipe out their future, that's going to make their children's college degrees worthless, or might result in one day extreme government oppression, something as bad or worse as some of the things that went on in World War II. And first exposure sucks. And with first exposure, the person freaks out. And it's like a person with new religion. Right, the person that's just been converted, I gotta do some. But in religion, it's simple: either follow these rules or go tell people these words. Right, so that person gets like a messiah complex, and they go out and they do, and they they're surrounded. But they're, see, with religion, you're surrounded by this other group of people that have all been through it before, and they're gonna help you walk and all. But this new person, that's it's not new religion; it's new exposure, new first exposure, feels alone, and. Then they say to themselves, I can't really talk to most of my friends and family about this thing because they're going to think I'm freaking crazy. Or they think, well, I'll tell them what I know. I'll tell them the truth. I'll tell them that the Comptroller General of the United States of America, former Comptroller General, and this isn't political, so they should listen because this guy served under both Bushes and Bill Clinton, came out and told us years ago that we have over $150 trillion of bills coming in the next few years that we cannot pay. I'll tell them that. I'll tell them that our national debt is $17 trillion and growing. I'll tell them that I've discovered this. I'll tell them about these things that the NSA is doing that are actually in newspapers now that we know about. I'll tell them how they, you know, whatever it is. And either they don't tell them, which is bad, right, or they do tell them, which is worse. And when I say bad and worse, it's not about whether you should do it or not. It's the effect on the person, right, the person who's got first exposure syndrome. Okay, so if you don't tell anybody, you bottle it all up inside and start freaking out. Or if you do tell somebody, what generally happens is they they brush you off. They tell you it's not worth worrying about. Ah, eh, whatever, it'll be fine. Or yeah, we all know that, but what can you do, right? The fatalistic crap, and they don't really believe it, and you know that, and then it goes back inside and it hurts, and you're like, no. And then you write me and go, how do I reach my brother-in-law so that he's not screwed? And I'm like, you're probably screwed, so don't worry about him yet. Worry about yourself. Like, damn, I don't know what to do. So then what happens to this person is they're like, crap, I know, Google knows the answer. And they find crap like Captain Dave's survival site, and it tells you to build a shelter in the woods, and then they find another one that says just to buy silver, and then they find a survival podcast. And if you don't go back and listen to some of the early episodes, you come on and we're talking about building a very complex battery bank one day and a food forest the next day, and I don't know what to do. And then you go over here, and this guy says not to worry about it. All you got to do is buy a bunch of silver, and you'll be a millionaire. This is a good thing for you. Then you go over here, and this guy goes, they're coming to get you right now. And some of you know who I'm talking about, you know, they're out on your front porch right now, they're about to steal your children from you, right, and they're like, holy crap, holy crap, holy crap, what do I do, here's the answer, stop, stop, breathe, in the nose, out the mouth, relax, you just experienced first exposure syndrome. You now know everything's not super. Psychologically, this isn't much different from a survival standpoint of you were walking in the woods. You were sure the trail was just to your right. It's getting dark. It's getting cold. You don't have much food or water. You don't have a lot of skills and training. And now you look over to the right and there is no trail. You start walking to the right and nothing looks familiar and I'm lost. 
First thing any good wilderness survivalist teacher would tell you in that situation, stop. Assess your situation, and here's a checklist to go through. This is where you are with first exposure. Some of you right now are going, holy crap, my heart's racing from that. And you're going, I, I know what he's about to say next, and still I remember now. I remember what that was like. I remember feeling that way. I remember feeling there's there's no way I can do all this in time. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make it. And you remember what it feels like? Good. The next time somebody like that is somebody you're trying to help, remember it. So you have the patience and the compassion to help them get where you are now. And then remember sometimes when you feel like that, there's people that have already been where you are and they're further along yet. And I mean even People that are halfway down the path or three-quarters of the way down the path toward where they feel really good about themselves again still have a long way to go, including me. And sometimes I feel like that. I mean, I re understand, guys. I research this shit every day. I get 400 to 500 emails a day about what's wrong in the world. And I get like 10 that are about what's right. That's why I try to put so many of those on the show. I see the corruption in the police departments at the local level. I see the corruption at the federal level going on. I see people being lied to by the people that swore to protect them. I, I see the rise of the police state. I see a guy that comes out and tells you the truth of what your government's doing to you, and your government turns around and says that he's a threat to national security and somehow endangered a person who was looking for a guy in a cave in Afghanistan. And I know that's complete bullshit, and I know that a good 90% of the people in this country either don't care or believe it. I get it. And every once in a while I think, man, we are so screwed. And I look around and go, have I done enough? And I look at my, and I think to myself sometimes, you know, you had this property in Arkansas. It was so far along. You hit the reset button less than a year ago, and now you're here, and this is really shaping up to be so much better potentially. But damn, dude, you got two and a half, three years of work to make it what you want it to be. Is it, is it going to be in time? Are you, and, and I think to myself, yeah. Relax, Jack. You're going to be all right. And that's what I want. That's what I want for everybody out there. When the heart starts racing and the mind starts racing and you're thinking, all these things I've got to do. Holy crap. Stop. Breathe. Relax. And I'm going to show you how permaculture fits in with this. And I'm not going to tell you to plant a tree. I'm just going to tell you one permaculture principle that should be the guiding principle in managing any plan or getting prepared for any crisis. Permaculture principle of observe and interact. So if we went out and you said, I want to plant trees here and a garden there and herbs there and put a pond here on my property and make it sustainable, and I just want to get started, I'd say, whoa, hold on. Let's, let's do something first. Let's, let's observe and interact with what's already here so that we build a system that mates up with the existing reality. There's certain things that we would look in that backyard that we know are always going to be true. We, we absolutely know where the sun will come up and where the sun will set every day of the year from now until the sun turns into a giant fireball of red nova and, and, and a red giant and eats the planet. Until that day happens, that sun's going to come up over there on November 20th Every year, and it's going to go down over there at a specific time, and we know the way that that's going to happen. We know that there's a certain slope in your property. Unless we alter it, when it rains, the water's going to flow a certain way, pool in certain places, moving, and we need to observe all of this. We know that there are certain structures that are basically permanent, and they're always going to cast shade or block wind or channel wind. And we're going to observe all of these things, and we're going to say, well, there's certain pest insects as we call them or weeds that are endemic to this system and what do they tell us about this system we're going to say okay there's certain plants that do well here that are productive or related to productive species maybe amaranth weed grows really good here so that would mean that amaranth grain would grow really good here and maybe not maybe we don't you know we have to take time to assess this whole situation and say to ourselves what mates up with this system. What do and, and as we do the interaction part, as we start to make adjustments, as we do say, well I'm going to put the garden bed in here. How does that work out? 
If we pull out a plant, what replaces it? Is another one just like it or a different species? If we remove a certain plant and we didn't have a pest problem before we removed that plant that we saw as a weed and now we have a pest plant was some pest problem, you know, some insect pest, was that plant providing habitat for something that was until now keeping it in check? We look at all these things as observed interaction. This is how we have to begin a plan to fortify your life for the future. This, this is a pattern that repeats itself infinitely. And this is something that if you want to become a good troubleshooter, you'll learn to do. You'll recognize patterns. You'll say, hey, if that's true about this, then it probably relates to something equally true about that. All right, And that is how you begin this assessment. So what will we do? The first thing we're going to do is say, let's observe our lives. Where are our lives in conflict with our own survival and our own future happiness? Where do the conflicts exist? Okay, So what that would be is if you're sitting down and you go one day, gee, we owe like $50,000 in credit card bills. And if we pay the payment we've been paying right now and never spend another dime, and we're 38 right now, we'll be 62 before we pay this crap off. That's in conflict with your, your, your survival financially, your happiness financially, and your plans for the future. And you know if you don't make a change, it's not even going to happen at 62 because you're going to keep spending money that way. So we know that's a conflict. So we, we put that into the, the column from our observation of something that we must do something about. If you have been investing your money without paying attention to it, just doing you know five or six percent in your 401k, and you don't even understand the funds that your money's in, and you don't know the risks that that represents, don't freak out about it, but put getting a better handle and control over that and knowledge about that into the conflict of interest category. That's an, a direct conflict of interest. If you look around your house and say, well, there's only enough food here if we ate everything, we started scraping you know, the bottom of cans and crap to last about two weeks. And it's, it's theoretically possible, at least that at some point we could have to go longer than that. Then lack of sufficient food for long-term use is in conflict with, with your long-term survival interest. You, you start to figure out what am I, what in my lifestyle is conflicting with my, my health and safety and well-being long-term and the health, safety and well-being of my children. This is where it gets scary again. Because you may sit down and go, you know what? This job I have that pays the bills for now, and I, but I have bills I can't even figure out how we're going to fully pay and when we're going to get out from under this mess. This job, this job is killing me. I hate this. I hate everything about it. I have to do things I find immoral. I'm stressed out. I feel like I'm going to have my heart explode by the time I'm 50 if I stay at this place. And you look at the guy that's 50 there and go, I might want it to explode. I don't want to be him. I don't want, I don't want this anymore. And you really, and it goes into conflict of interest on your list. And you say to yourself, well, how do I, how do I rectify that? And the answer may not be what you want to hear. It may be for the next two years, you just, Freaking suck it up, drive on, and do that job. But you change other components of your lifestyle so that it lets you get yourself out of a hole and you start planning my future. Well, what am I going to do next? Or it might be, you know, we have enough stability and I have enough other opportunities, so I'm just going to walk away from that today. And when you can do that, you should. When you can do that without harming yourself or your family, you should. Because you ain't getting any younger. You have to make that decision for yourself. But this is this is the, the, the assessment done on first exposure. You're going, holy crap, this doesn't make me feel... Dude, this doesn't make me feel better. What the hell are you... I thought this was supposed to help. Hold on, relax. You, you've got to figure out how lost are you. How short on food are you? How far from civilization are you when you're in the woods? You've got to figure it out. And then you got to come up with a plan. How do I get the hell out of here? Do I wait for rescue or do I self, you know, do I self extract? If I'm going to self extract, how do I do that without putting myself in greater jeopardy? How do I do that in such a way that if somebody does come to rescue me and I'm not there, they know which way I've went? Well, here's the thing. In this little problem that you have, 
you're going to have to self-extract. And it's not really important to leave an arrow behind telling the rescue party where you went to because there is no rescue party coming. You have to do this for yourself because whether you want to hear what I'm about to say next or not, it's true. You have done this to yourself. Wherever you are in life, you can't blame your mama, you can't blame Obama, you can't blame anybody. Wherever you are in life, you've put yourself there. You've made choices and decisions along the way that have got you to where you are. The good news about that is since that is true, that means since you had the power to get into the hole, you have the power to get out of the hole. And it's reasonable that it might take at least 50% as long time as it took to go in that hole to get fully out of it. If it took you 10 years to dig a hole and you can get out in five, you shouldn't freak out. You should start getting out of the hole, right, instead of continuing to dig it. You should start working your way up and out. And we have to do this assessment first. Now, I want you to understand this. I'm talking about writing things down, making lists here. I'm not being a metaphoric person. I am serious. Get a book. Start writing it down. Things in, Get a notebook and then like put on one page. Things in conflict with my survival, sustainability, and future happiness. And these are not Barack Obama passed the law. Said, no. That's not, that's not, because that is inside your circle of concern, not influence. I want things on this list that you actually control. What are you doing, actively or passively, that are in conflict with your own future? Put it on a list. Turn a few pages, five or ten. It's probably going to be a long list by the time you're done with it, if you're honest. And write down things I need to survive. Okay? And then maybe one every half page, right? So or two every page, right? So right under there, write, and I'm going to give you the six things to write down. Food, go halfway down the thing and write down water, then turn the page and write on the next page. Shelter, right? And then go down from there and write energy, right? And then on the next page, write security. And then the next thing to write is health and sanitation, This is your notes now to start figuring things out. I've just given you your six primary survival needs. And we need to look at where we're in conflict with our own future and the six things that we need to survive. And then I want you to add a seventh to that list. Money. Okay? And I want you to use money as an excuse For why you can't put water or food away, I want you to put down money as its own line item because even though it's not a survival need, it's a societal need, and we can't ignore it. Then we're going to go through that list, and we're going to say to ourselves, what are the easiest things I can do to improve my survivability in each of these seven areas and my happiness quotient in each of these seven areas? We're going to get the food. And I want you to write down under food, copy canning. Okay? Copy canning. And I want you to take another part of that same notebook. You only need one notebook for this. We're trying to save money for Pete's sake. And I want you to put down stuff or foodstuffs. And it's like 10, 20 pages away from all this other crap. And I want you to pretty much on a daily basis leave that notebook on the countertop in your kitchen. And every time you or anybody else in your family eats something out of that house or buy something to eat out that could be bought in a store instead, I want you to write it in that book. And if it's something that would store for a month or more without being in the refrigerator, I want you to put a star next to it. If it would go six months or more, I want you to put two stars next to it. And I want you to turn back to the part where you wrote down copy canning and realize can isn't can. It's just a term that first time I ever heard it came from Ron Hood. And what this means is items on that list with stars, you're going to start when you go to the store, you're going to pick one or two, and this week you're going to buy two of them instead of one. And then next week you're going to buy two of them instead of one. And when you use one, you put it on your shopping list, you're going to put a star next to it and buy two instead of one. And you're going to do that until you go, i got enough of this one thing now. It's kind of like spilling out of the shelf and I'm ready to go on to another item on that list. And eventually your pantry over a few months will go from being a shallow pantry to where when you open it, there's a few items here and there and everything's disorganized. You'll have to organize it now. And you'll have things stacked like they're in a supermarket. It'll look like a supermarket in there. You'll open it up and this thing of tomatoes that you buy and use all the time 
there'll be like six or eight of them in a line. Maybe they'll be stacked on top of each other. When you get new ones, put them in the back. Pull it to the front, just like the stock boy does in the supermarket. And all of a sudden, you'll look at your food supply one day and go, we could go a month now. We get bored, but we can we, we could go a month now. And we're going to get that done. And then we're going to say to ourselves, what else can we do with food? And I want you to write down under copy canning, cheap, long-term, crap food. Cheap, long-term, crap food. This is rice, beans, pasta. Highly non-paleo. I won't get into paleo today because I'm a very paleo meat-eating, vegetable-eating guy. But those are very cheap, very easy to store, long-term storage foods. And you could go out and fill up, get three food-grade five-gallon buckets, three um, hand warmers. Like you, when you go to the sporting goods section, they got those little packages that are like, you know, you open it up and you shake it. It's like a little pouch and it gets warm. The shit inside that pouch is the exact same shit inside expensive oxygen absorbers. And one of those is enough for a whole dadgone bucket. And you can get those buckets and those, and this is as simple as you could make it. I'm going to tell you how to do it right in just a second. Fill one bucket with beans, one bucket with rice, and one bucket with pasta, and throw the damn hand warmer. Open it first, inside the bucket, slap the lid on it, and stick it somewhere safe. It will last longer than you. It may not be the best quality food 25 years from now, but you will not die if you eat it. You will survive. You have just extended your long-term caloric rations extensively, and you've spent probably about $60, $70, maybe $100, bucks. but it's done. Your food is not finished. Your food has not gone to a point where you are ready to just kick back and go, I'm good now forever, but you can now stop breathing fast about your food security and please teach yourself to put, cook pasta, rice, and beans. If you want to go a little bit better than that, put down protein. Okay, And either start buying canned meat or learn to can and can a bunch of meat Or go to somewhere like Mountain House through one of our sponsors and buy a case of freeze-dried chicken and freeze-dried beef cubes and put those two cases of meat, which will cost you about $400, with your low-crap food. Now you have protein and carbohydrates. Get yourself a couple big jugs of oil, put them there. As you use oil, rotate through. Now you have fat. You now can stop going, I'm going to starve, I'm going to starve, I'm going to starve. This is not a high-end food storage program. It is a foundational point that will make you calm down long enough to figure out what fits your life going forward. If you already have a better idea of what fits your life going forward, you don't have to do any of that. Do whatever you think. But if you're not sure, there's your place to start. Now, go down your list. If I remember the list I gave you off the top of my head in order, the next thing on it should be water. I want you to write down cheap, easy, free underneath water. Okay. Now, if you drink nasty, disgusting stuff called soda that comes in two-liter plastic bottles, I want you to understand those are your water containers. I would prefer that you didn't drink that garbage, and the diet stuff is probably just as bad as the non-diet stuff. But fine, you already have them, that's great. If you don't drink that, Good for you. Then I want you to write down the names of several people that you know do drink that crap. Most of them throw the bottles away. I want you to make a phone call or the next time you visit them say, Hey, I'm working on a project. That way you don't have to explain what it is. And I need soda bottles. I'll tell you another bottle I like is there's big giant one-gallon jugs that Arizona iced tea comes in. I think that is garbage. I will not put it in my body, but my father drinks about two of the, my father-in-law drinks about two of those a week. He's in his 80s. If he wants to drink Arizona iced tea, I'm not about to tell him not to. He saves those jugs along with some other jugs for us, like orange juice and things like that come in. These jugs and soda bottles are designed to handle acidic product, product that has acid in it. And soda, high pressure because of the carbonation. So they're very tough, small, movable containers. I want you to get a bunch of them. I want you to rinse them out. I want you to find a place in your home or garage or what have you where you can store them. I want you to rinse them out really well. I want you to fill them up with water. I don't want you to treat them or sanitize them with anything special. If you want to rinse them out with a little bit of diluted bleach when you give them the first rinse, you can do that. 
If you're a freaking hypochondriac and you want to put like a drop of chlorine bleach in each one, go ahead. It's not necessary. It's pointless, but it won't kill you, so go ahead and do it so you'll feel better. And I want you to store water. And I want you to, over time, store at least 50 gallons of water that way. If you have to put 10 gallons in this closet and 5 gallons in that closet and 10 gallons there and 20 gallons out in the garage and 4 gallons in the pantry, whatever, I want a minimum of 50 gallons of water. You can now breathe easy. You will not dehydrate if you have a problem with your water supply. And I want you to write down filter. And I want you to realize you can go out and buy a cheap filter today if you really want to, which will do better than nothing. Or you can start saving for a good quality product like a Berkey. Write down Berkey. I know he's my sponsor, but I would tell you that if he was, if the Berkey guy wasn't my sponsor, I would tell you the same filter. If you don't want to use a Berkey, write down whatever your dream water filter is. I want you to start a little savings account to make that part of your life because drinking crappy water today that comes out of your faucet with fluoride and chlorine and all the other garbage in it is in conflict with your interest for a better, happier, long-term life. So I want you to make that a long-term plan, but I want the cheap, free, easy water stored now. Then I want you to write down under there, increase long-term water sustainability. And for right now, while you're in the holy crap, what do I do phase, don't worry about that. Just put it on the list. All right? Now, shelter. I want you to write down, I have shelter. So far, so good. Write it down. I'm serious. I have shelter. So far, so good. And then I want you to write down storm, fire, natural disaster on the next line. A question mark. A question mark represents if your structure that you call your shelter right now were heavily damaged, where the hell would you go? And I want you to think about people you could stay with. I want you to think about short and long-term shelter needs. And I want you to push that one for now, into the long-term planning stage. Most of us have shelter. If you're living in a box on the side of the street, solve that problem before you do the first two steps. Everybody else, you've got some sort of a shelter. We're going to make that part really of our financial planning, our long-term financial planning. Redundancies and resiliencies with insurance and where we would go and maybe having a second location eventually, things like that. All right, next up will be energy. So you've got energy written down. Under energy, I want you to write the primary source of energy that most people are dependent on, electricity. Under electricity, I want you to write the other one that comes up the most often, gasoline. Gasoline can be used to make electricity. Realize that as you make this plan for your life. Then I want, to, I want you to write down darkness. We're going to address these three, and again, what we're ending up with at the end of this episode and at the end of doing these things for a couple months is not, I am now a survivalist that can survive the zombie apocalypse. It is, I have now done the shit that every adult in America should be responsible enough to do for themselves without anybody telling them, and I can now breathe and figure out my long-term plan. Understand that. So, <laughs> with the first one, energy. Or electricity. I want you to skip it for now. I want you to move to gasoline. I want you to write down gas cans. Gas cans. And I want you to budget over the next at least six months enough money to buy one five-gallon gas can a month, some stabilizer to go in your gas, okay, And I want you to budget enough to fill that can in addition to the gas you use every month. So an extra five gallons of gas in one can that's going to run about seven bucks for the gas can, right? And five gallons of gas, $15. If you can't do that, I want you to do it every other month for a year. But I want you to start doing that. Gasoline is extremely storable, easily for two years. You're not going to freak out about two years because I'm going to fix that next, all right? I'd like you to do this once a month for a minimum of a year. That would give us 60 gallons of gasoline. This is dependent. If you live in an apartment, you might have to figure something else out. You might go get yourself one of those 15-gallon blue uh, water barrels that uh, Stephen Harris recommends you store gas in. You might store it in there in your closet. I wouldn't do it. Steve recommends it, and I understand why. 
You live in an apartment, you have some unique needs. I don't know, maybe you need a small, cheap storage facility for some things if you live in an apartment. I'll tell you this, I would have one. I've seen storage space, 5 by 10 storage space, as cheap as 35 bucks a month. And, and I would probably have, or 8 by 10 something like that. I, I would probably have something like that if I lived in an apartment. So I'm going to pretend that you either can find space or uh, you have space to do these things. But anyway, I want you to do that. And I want you to budget one more thing in there. I mean, you can borrow one or, or scrape one up and have one in a drawer somewhere already. You need a Sharpie, a big black one. And on every gas can, when you get it, I want you to write a number. The first one you get, I want you to write a number one. Okay? The second gas can you get, I want you to write a number two on it. And then the third one, you see where this is going. If you have at least six, six times five is 30 gallons of reserve gasoline. There are a lot of people who would have saved their ass a lot of misery, heartache, and hardship if they had just 30 gallons of gasoline during some recent hurricanes and other events. And there's a lot of people that could have helped a lot of other people here and there, this and that, by you know dumping five gallons of gas in a vehicle form. So this is a good thing to have. And when we get to electricity, you're going to see that gasoline is also a good thing to have. Now, when you get to gas can number six, whether it takes you six months or a year, depending on your budget, this is what I want you to do. The next month, I want you to take gas can number one. I want you to pull it out of the line where it's the first one in line, and it goes one, two, three, four, five, six. I want you to take gas can number one. I want you to dump it in your vehicle because your vehicle runs on gasoline. If you have a diesel vehicle, store diesel first before gas. Okay? You should know this on your own, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Dump the can of gas into your vehicle. Close it up. Take your vehicle to the gas station. Fill up the vehicle. Fill up the can. Put some stabilizer in it. Put the lid back on it and take it home. Put it in the line after six. So it says two, three, four, five, six, one. Wash, rinse, repeat. Again, I would prefer you do this with eventually 12 gas cans, but for now do it with six. This will mean even if you do it every other month with six cans, you are completely fully rotating your gasoline every single year, and it can store two years, no problem, with some stabilizer in it, so you have a 50% redundancy built into that. If you get 12 and do it every month, which is smart, you're going through 60 gallons a year of reserve capacity gas, and once you've paid for the 12 cans and the first batch of gas in each one, it costs you exactly $0 more a month to do this. So we go from a burden of finance, additional financing, to no burden whatsoever. See how that works. Now we have gasoline. We pat ourselves on the back and say, now we got gasoline. Now, we're going to go back up to electricity. I believe that everybody out there should eventually build a battery bank. I think the first investment, though, you should make should be in a 400 to 800-watt inverter, and an 800-watt inverter is better. Stephen Harris has done extensive shows about this. I'm giving you the Jack Spirico short version. You go out and find yourself a good 800-watt inverter, and understand when you put this on your car, because your car is going to become your first generator, you are going to have to lift up the hood and take alligator clips and clip it to your battery bank. Because if you put an 800-watt inverter, if it has one, into your cigarette lighter, and you try to pull anything more than about 100, 110, 120 watts through it, it will go pop and blow your fuse, and you'll think it doesn't work anymore, and it'll actually be the fuse in the car. So I want you to know that you have to do that. I want you to take that inverter, and I want you to attach it to a piece of something like 2x6 or 2x8 so that it can sit somewhere and not fall down into your car and hit your fan and blow everything to hell and screw up your car. And I want you to go out and get some extension cords. So write down inverter extension cords 2x8 plank. And you can use 2x10 or whatever works best for your inverter. You can decide that for yourself. Just write down a piece of wood. And I want you to go get some inexpensive uh, extension cables from Walmart or anywhere else or order them at Amazon. And I want you to get some three-way plugs, solid orange three-way plugs. Stephen Harris and I both come to the same conclusion on those being the best thing to make power strips out of. And I want you to have that. 
And I want you to realize you can run lamps and you can run small TV sets and you can even shut everything else off and run your refrigerator for two hours a day and keep your food almost infinitely just by idling your car. And I want you to know that you need enough extension cords if you keep your car in the garage that you need to be able to open the garage door back the car fully out of the garage and run the extension cords and still reach your house. And I want you to put that in a Rubbermaid tub and I want you to say, this is my temporary generator solution. Okay? Then I want you to go out and find yourself the best generator you can afford. And second, I want you to add that. And then you can pat yourself on the back and say, I'm pretty good on electricity now. And then you can look at building more sophisticated battery banks and putting solar and wind in and all other kinds of crap. But until you do those two things, you have not taken the easiest, most relevant steps to making your life better. I do want you to allocate some time when you get your generator to learn how it works, to fire it up. And I want you to take it out once a month, pull it outside, fire it up and run it for 10 minutes. And I want you to put, you don't have to put power on or anything, just run it. Your life will be better, trust me, if you do this. I want you to learn how to change the oil. I want you to buy a, at least one spark plug. And if it's a generator that runs with any kind of belts, and mine doesn't, but some do, you get a set of belts for it and a couple spark plugs for it and all the tools you would need to change things like oil and spark plugs. I want you to put them in a bag. I want you to ziplock that bag and I want you to stick it in the bin with the inverter and the extension cords and the things that you use for that generator. And then you put that on a shelf somewhere and you say, this is my generator kit. Now we can run it from the car and we can run it from the generator. I am okay for immediate problems with energy. And now I can plan my future. And I want you to say to yourself, self, you've done pretty good. Now, concurrently is how this stuff's all being done. A little bit here and a little bit there. At the same time, I want you where it says darkness, right? That means the power's gone out and I've got generators and I've got the car and the inverter, but now it's dark in my freaking house. And I have not yet built a battery bank that just turns lights on for myself and Even if I have all that stuff ready, or I haven't gotten that far yet, I just need to at least be able to see what the hell's going on. And now it's dark, and my kids are scared, and I don't know what to do, and what am I going to do? And I want you to put down this word. There's special ones of these, and you don't need them. Night light. Night light. Okay? You know, like for kids that are scared of the dark, you have a little night light you plug in. Well, there's night lights that when you plug them in, they cost about two bucks. And when it's bright and shiny, it has a little sensor, and it says, I don't need to be on, and it goes off. And if the darkness comes, it turns itself on. Okay. Now, the problem with that night light is what happens when the power goes off? It can't turn on. So what you need is a backup-powered night light. And there are lots of different ones of these, and I'll give you a few of them that work good. There's a Durafix, D-U-R-O-F-I-X, RL435 lithium-ion 4-volt plug-in power outage LED light 2-pack you can get on Amazon.com. Um, you can get, what's another, i got some of them here I'm looking up for you. Um, the Sylvania ones are pretty good, but these are just little night lights. And if you put in power failure light or emergency plug-in light into Amazon or Google, you'll find all kinds of them. And the way they work is they're just like these little $2 night lights, except you have to spend a little bit more money because there's a battery inside them. And they sit there, and when the power goes out, they turn themselves on. And you can pull them out of the wall and use them like a flashlight to find your crap. I want you to get a few of these and put them in places around your house where you would be if the power went out and you needed to find your way. The beautiful things about these is they can be set so that when you turn off the lights, they don't just come on. They only come on when power fails. You can have one in your bedroom, and you're not a kid of scared of the dark, but if the lights go out at night and the kids are like, Eddie, I don't know what to do, you can get up and not stub your toe and find your way. You also should have a flashlight, a tactical light, and a gun uh, somewhere near to your bed anyway, but we'll leave that alone for right now and say we at least have these things. So now we've got that. We've got the generator, we've got the inverter, we've got the power backup lights. Somewhere in your house should be a box, a bin, something with a whole bunch of candles, something to light them with, and a whole bunch of flashlights. Those exist somewhere. You put that away. That is your blackout kit. We now have a blackout kit. Now, the best thing you can do after this, and maybe before this, honestly, is go get yourself a good recharger, 
and uh, some good rechargeable AA and AAA batteries. They will do the majority of what you need and start using these batteries in your remote controls for your TV set, for your kids' video game controllers. Use them all the time. The very best ones you can get your hands on are Stephen Harris recommended. I'm referencing him a lot in the energy part for a reason. He's good at what he does. Anyway, he's recommended these for a long time. I tried them, and I think out of everything I've tried, he's right. They are the best. They are made by um, Sanyo. They are the Enloop, E-N-E-L-L-O-P uh, batteries. You can get them in eight packs of AA and AAA, and I recommend them as the primary thing you use as a backup portable battery. When you do that, you're going to need a charger. I would buy the same one he recommends. It is the PowerX MHC800S 8-cell smart charger. I recommend that one. It's about 60 bucks, and I recommend it for the same reason Steven does. I can put batteries in at all different levels. It charges them individually, and it's smart so it won't fry them. Once they're fully charged, it will stop charging them. With what I've just given you, energy is pretty good. Now, if we add ourselves a backup battery system with a couple uh, either golf cart batteries or, or uh, marine batteries with a charger maintainer, great. You can get all of the stuff that I'm talking about, all the parts, everything linked on Amazon, so you can see it at Steve's website. It's battery1234.com, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff there, and it gets pretty advanced, but I would start with what I gave you. And you can prioritize for yourself what order you do them in, but I can tell you that if you store gasoline and have a small generator and some extension cords and an inverter, you'll solve the majority of your problems. And if you have all that plus the end-loop batteries, you can charge those with your inverter in your car or with your generator and what have you. So energy's now not done, but we've now stabilized our lives as far as energy goes for immediate threats and dangers. Now we're going to get to security. You might think I'm going to put down get a gun. No. The first thing I'm going to say is make sure your home is secure. So I want you to examine all the locks on your doors. And if any of them are old and kind of easy failure type things or your door jams aren't good, I want you to fix that. Whatever you need to do it, put down fixed doors and windows that need it. That's step one. Number two, put down procedure. Procedure. Alright, and this is what I, some of the procedures I want you to do. When you come home and go into your house, lock shit up. I want you to write it down that way so you won't, won't, you know, take it lightly. Lock shit up. I want you to lock your car if it's not in your garage. I want you to lock your garage. I want you to lock your front door and your back door and all your windows. If you open windows to let air through, that's fine. Just understand that you're at security risk when you do that. It's a great idea if you can, when you're buying a house or putting in new windows, to put the windows in, that you can open the top part of the window versus the bottom part of the window. Yes, somebody can still get in, but it's not quite as easy to just cut the screen and crawl in quietly if they have to move the window. So, I want you to, first of all, make your home as secure as possible. I want you to think about things like, do I leave the garage open? Do I leave my car unlocked? I want you to fix these things. Because the majority of, of break-ins and injuries that happen in home involve somebody leaving the door unlocked or leaving the car unlocked and somebody figures out, hey, that pretty lady lives there. I'd like to rape her. I'll sit in the back of her car and I'll wait for her to come out in the morning because I know she comes out at 7.45 every morning, gives herself 15 minutes to get to work and pick up a Starbucks on the way. I'll just be there waiting for her. And when she gets in her car, I'll grab her and I'll, I'll do whatever I need to subdue her, open her garage if she doesn't put her car in, and I'll back her car in there and close the door and no one will be the wiser. And that kind of crap happens. I also want you to write down the following words. Am I being stupid with security? I want you to write that down. And I want you to seriously examine your life and ask yourself, are you being stupid with security? Let me give you a perfect example of stupidity that my wife has pointed out on numerous occasions. We'll be driving around. We'll see some soccer mom with her SUV. They'll have those little stickers that are like the doggy, the kitty, the kids, and mommy and daddy. I don't like that, but fine. But some of them say things like Danny and Tommy and Billy and the dog's name is Scooter or whatever, and the dad's name and the mom's name. My wife has sworn to God the next time she sees one of those at a soccer game and sees the people that get out of it, she's going to walk up to said soccer mom and say, 
Hi, hi, Tammy. Your brother Billy got hurt playing soccer, and your mom and your your mom Sandy and your dad Bob have taken him to the hospital, and they want me to take you there. But but before that, maybe we should stop and make sure Scooter has food and pick some stuff up for the hospital. Let's go. Let's go, Tammy, now. And then watch their face turn white and go. You're stupid. Take that crap off of your freaking vehicle. So I want you to seriously, you're thinking, that's dumb. You might be doing something equally dumb. I want you to start examining your life. Do you pump gas in a part of town where you're likely to get jacked with your earbuds in? If you do, take your freaking earbuds out when you're filling up your car and your new gas cans. I want you to seriously examine your situational awareness. So the great part of security is most of what we need to do doesn't cost us any money. It's an evaluation. It's an evaluation. I'm going to add another podcast for you instead of going deeper into this today because we're already at an hour here called Developing Situational Awareness. I'm going to put that in the show notes as well so that you can look that one up and listen to it as well. And honestly, on that note, we are at an hour. It's a lot for a new person to take in, especially with the homework. We're going to call it these additional uh, episodes. And I've had my interview for tomorrow canceled, so tomorrow's going to be just me again. I'm going to pick up on the rest of security tomorrow, okay? And then I'm going to go through, uh, after security, health and sanitation, how to get that established. And that's going to go back to water and food on some levels. And then we're going to talk about your financial health and how that plays in all this, not only from a standpoint of making you more secure, but enabling you to do these things. All of the things I talked about today aren't really expensive when you look at what's your life worth, but we're talking several thousand dollars at least to get all of this done. It's worth it, and we don't have to do it now. We just have to start doing it now. We need to prioritize where we're weakest. That's why we did the first, the self-evaluation. Where we're most vulnerable, I'll talk about that tomorrow with tying this all together with a, with a vulnerability analysis. If you live in Florida, you're more vulnerable to hurricanes than if you live in North Dakota. But if you live in North Dakota, you're more vulnerable to blizzards than if you live in Florida. But when we talk about commonality of disasters, we wrap it up, you'll see it's not that critical, but it is worth at least looking at. So we're gonna, what we're gonna do tomorrow is focus on getting through the rest of this list and then prioritizing based on if it's free, do it. Okay? If it costs a little bit of money, do it. And then prioritize everything else based on your needs and your risk tolerances and your threat analysis. And we're gonna talk about taking this plan And by the end of the year, being well on your way toward being a grown adult human being in America the way we're all supposed to. Because I'm going to share that secret with you. When I get done with all this, you're not a survivalist yet. You're just a, an apprentice survivalist. Now, then we're ready to go to the next level. Then we're going to start saying, and some of these things we may be doing along the way because they're fun and good for us. Like we're going to grow a garden, but then we're going to get more sophisticated with that. And that's that's what the rest of the show's about. But this fundamental thing that I'm teaching you today, none of this is craziness. None of this is in case, you know, the zombies uh, invade. All this, is, all this is is the stuff your grandparents did. Now, they might have not done some of the technological components to it. They didn't have rechargeable lithium-ion batteries. They didn't exist yet. But if they did, they would have had them. If they did, they would have had them. You know, if they were available, they would have done They would have said, well, that's easy. That's better than buying a battery every time one dies. I'll get some of them end loop things and stick them in the wall, and that way they'll work even when the power's out. And when they all are dead, then maybe I can recharge with one of them inverter things I've never heard of either. Your great-grandparents would have had all of this stuff as part of their preparedness back then because it's being a grown adult. See, to me, being a grown adult human being in America today, It's about being responsible for yourself and those that depend on you. And the reason you had the holy crap moment isn't because, well, the whole economy could fall apart. What really happens and causes that initial holy crap moment is you realize this is shit I should have been doing all along. It's kind of like being back in school and you had this term paper that was given to you as an assignment like on the first day of the, the year, but it was going to be due like in March right before spring break. And you forgot that it even existed and you didn't even know about it. And like two days before spring break, you found out, hey, you're supposed to do this term paper. And you freak out. It's the same thing because you should have done it already. 
you're more upset at yourself. It's hard to believe. There's reasons I say you don't get to blame Barack Obama, right? You don't get to blame politicians. You don't get to blame anybody. This is on you. These are the first steps. Tomorrow I'll continue on this. And I think by the time we're done with these two episodes, people will have a blueprint. And if you take the other episodes I've recommended for you, you'll really quickly develop your life into something far more safe, far more secure. And then a lot of the other stuff that we talk about, you'll pick and choose. Well, you know, they're talking about building a battery bank right now. I've got kind of a, a decent one, but not a great one. But I'm not ready to build that big one yet. I'm more concerned with upping my food production, getting some chickens, and starting to produce some of my own protein. I'm going to do that first. And, and you'll be able to prioritize that because you'll be able to think clearly because, holy crap, we'll go away. So tomorrow we'll come back. We'll finish killing off holy crap. We'll finish fixing first exposure syndrome. We'll get you well onto your way. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Yeah.